Okay, boys, we're already recording. <laughs> Natalia, are we recording? Yeah, um, Ezra, you're, you're you're welcome to do the the. Natalia sneaking into the pod, sneaking into the pod. <laughs> Ezra, you're welcome to do the honors. Honestly, though, we've um, we've veered away from the welcome. We've since moved on to Brahim Habaim to the Comfortable Podcast. Wow, look at see see how courteous the podcast is when Tani's not here. No one's threatening to castrate each other. Just, well, it's still early. We're still early. <laughs> there's just a bunch of people who are politely letting other people do Ruhim Abayim to the Kumfufu podcast. The only podcast where when Tani Levitt leaves to go to a wedding, other people continue the podcast with appreciably worse sound quality. All right. Now we're able, we're, now we're able to talk about how we're a visual podcast. The button-down uh-huh. shirt is not the only thing I specifically did for this podcast. I have a mustache. Solely for this recording. <laughs> why do you? Um, why don't? Why didn't you just do the terrible not shave look that I have, or the not shave but can actually complete the beard? Because some of us understand this is a visual podcast. That's right. We've been doing this is our forty seventh episode. Um, Baruch Hashem. And <laughs> are you? Your your beard's looking pretty full. You've uh, I have I, I, some strikes I, here that I, I don't have. Are you Melman? How I, does it? How, how does it feel to be a guest on the Kumfufu podcast before any of the siblings of current members of Kumfufu? That's what? not true. We've had all three Adlers multiple times. <laughs> they, but they are current members. Any non Kumfufu siblings of current members? Uh, let's also, um, like, uh, let's, let's be some FPs right here and um, set out the table. That's a theme for the, the kind of stuff we'll be talking about. Set the table for um, what's going on right now. So, Tani. Um, is unavailable this week, um, thank God. So now Ezra and I are, Ezra, um, our first alternate host, um, and I are free to voice our opinions on whatever topic we want uh, without his restrictive regime shutting us up. And we are pl- proud to welcome as our guest, um, Kent Mill by marriage, <laughs> Arya Melman. Uh, welcome to the podcast. And now Ezra, you could, you could say your piece. It's an honor to be here. It's actually my first podcast. Um, so... It's one of your first podcasts. It's my understanding is it's your first agenda-based conversation. That, that is true too. A lot of firsts for me. Which honestly, it's it, it's something that like when you're speaking with your wife, your family, mm-hmm. um, other other people that we'll we'll get into in a few minutes, having an agenda for conversation, it just makes things flow better. It makes things nicer. It's honestly, it's it's such a it's just such, it releases so much burden that you don't need to come up with your own topics. It's already done and you can like just follow the script. 45 minutes, uh, <laughs> no rambling, no going off on tangents. We could have made this, this one could have been four hours, even though we were only like two minutes in. It might be. Arye, are you trying to tell me that you've never had an agenda-based conversation with Jeremy Rosenberg? I do not believe that Jeremy, that is it possible for Jeremy Rosenberg to not have agenda-based conversations. I, I'm sure he was ticking the agenda in his head, but he did not at any point reveal it to me written down. <laughs> is, is, uh, that, is that real? Does he, does he do it? Yeah, 100%. Jeremy Rosenberg has a thing called The Files, where he stores like every piece of information about his life, which consists on the, from the level of the rational to like recipes that he found online that he really likes, that he wants to store, all the way to 
jokes that he thought of while he was about to go to sleep that he had to write down in case he changes his career and becomes a stand-up comedian. <laughs> that also makes sense. Um, Mitch Hedberg has a similar thing. Mitch Hedberg says that um, he keeps a notepad by his bed in case he like wakes up in the middle of the night, thinks of a joke. But if he doesn't, he just needs to convince himself that whatever he thought of wasn't that funny. So Yeah, that's a great bit. But Mitch Hedberg was also a stand-up comedian. not And a- maybe Jeremy Rosenberg will be also. I mean, Jeremy Rosenberg likely will be the father of many intellectual movements um, going forward, and history will be so thankful that we have these first-party accounts of his memoirs, of his diaries. I, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. And first-party written accounts is another topic we'll be delving into later in the conversation. Um, but first, um, wait, let's Jer- get into- Wait, Alef, Alef, let me ask you a question. Which, do you, which person do you think is more likely to be the father of intellectual movements? Jeremy Rosenberg or Jeremy Rosenthal? <sighs> Same question for you, Arya. Who do you think is more likely to be the father of intellectual movements, Jeremy Rosenberg or Jeremy Rosenthal? I would go Berg. Um, I would. Why? I, th- I think that Jeremy Rosenthal. He's. Um, I think he's very successful. This has been true since he got a sixty hundred on the SATs. So he's very good at working within a structure. I'm just not sure he's the best at creating that structure for himself. I think Jeremy Rosenberg will be a situation where like he doesn't garner much uh, sort of a huge following in his lifetime, but like 200 years down the line, someone will recover his writings and then sort of like build that up, um, you know, much further sort of down the line. And that's that's going to be the weirdest, that's going to be the weirdest theology of all time. (laughs) And I think, um, I, I, I think that with some luck and getting our demographic to the right hands. I think that the next five hours of this podcast right here will also start some intellectual movement. We got through number one. (laughs) Speaking of intellectual movements, uh, speaking of intellectual movements, Joey, uh, somewhat bizarrely in my opinion, because Joey's not usually one to go with the stream or to go with the flow, um, had a thought that maybe we should do this podcast with Ilui Nishma of Steinsaltz. which is kind of weird because I don't think... That's a PFT, that Joey, man. That's a PFT. I, I, don't, I don't think that Joey has any connection with Ruf Steinsaltz at all. And in fact, that having no connection with Ruf Steinsaltz seemed to be the number one criteria for people to write a Facebook post about Ruf Steinsaltz this week. Um, because I saw a lot of people writing Facebook posts about Ruf Steinsaltz that clearly had no idea who the hell he was. Um, But I did want to say that a lot of people don't know this, though Aryeh may have heard this from his parents, as I heard from my parents this week. But Ersteinsaltz was actually a visiting scholar at Kesher in D.C. for a year in the late 80s. Wait, for a year? Early 90s, it might have been even. Um, And my dad and my mom were laughing because um, Rabbi Weinberg, who is the current rabbi of Kemmel Synagogue, who also clearly does I think not. everyone listening to the podcast knows who Rabbi Weinberg is. <laughs> yes, that's probably true. No, no, but sometimes, sometimes Hannah Garbo listens, and she might not know who Rabbi Weinberg is. Also, Joey Rubenstein. Joey Rubenstein might listen. He doesn't have a clue who Rabbi Weinberg is. <laughs> I don't think Joey Rubenstein listens. Honestly, it's, it's, I would love to know who these people listening are. I just want to argue if they're Russian bots, that's fine. Just tell me. <laughs> Anyways, so, so Rabbi, Weinberg, Rabbi Weinberg wrote a, a tartara about Steinsaltz, and he spoke about how Steinsaltz was quiet, humble, and caring. And my parents started dying of laughter because they knew Steinsaltz, and quiet, humble, and caring were like three things that no one would ever use to describe him. 
Uh, my dad has a story about how he really thought political science was stupid. And one time at a Shabbos meal, spent the entire meal like making fun of my dad for being a political scientist because he thought political science was stupid. And then I just saw recently other people that I know have actually knew Rav Steinsaltz, like older people have started posting about him. And it's funny to see the things that the people who knew him post. So I saw someone who's a rabbi in Gush post today about how Rav Steinsaltz um, was like an avid whiskey drinker and was like kind of a partier. And what do you mean kind of a partier? Yeah, like he would love, he loved drinking, like not like party, like like club party. Let's put it this way. There are two different types of parties, right? There's the parties that Jeremy Rosenberg went to before he was from and the parties that Jeremy Rosenberg went to after, <laughs> right? Okay, so, so, now, so now this episode is not Elui Nishmat, um, Rabbi Steinsaltz. This episode is Elui... Uh, Chaim, Jeremy Rosenberg. <laughs> I think that has to be. Steinsaltz did not go to the clubs, in case anyone was like unclear on that part. Well, maybe, no, maybe, maybe, the maybe, maybe the beard was a strap on, we don't, a merkin, <laughs> if you will. He didn't um. did go to the clubs, he went to the Fabrengans because he was Chabad. Um, but, I think, but I think the point is that like people, even people who generally oppose hagiographies, have like this natural inclination. What is a hagiography? Hagiography is when you write a biography of someone where you basically only talk about good things and make them seem better than they were, i.e. like any Godolim stories are hagiographies, right? But like even a lot of like non-Orthodox people, like we like to like make fun of Hasidim for like hagiographies, but we have a tendency to do it ourselves. Like first thing that someone like knew all of Shas by heart by the time they were three years old. Yeah, I don't think anyone claims that. That's pretty absurd. I don't know. If I was able to learn all Shas by heart when I was in utero. But then an angel touched you. Then an angel touched you, and all of a sudden you forgot it. Which is why I rejected the angel touch by growing this mustache. <laughs> it's an audio, video, visual podcast, people. But trust me, you should be very happy that you don't have the visual of this mustache. Honestly, my mustache is so blonde you can barely see it. Honestly, though, you need to take a picture and post it in a bathroom. You know what? Obafkagum. You don't remember Obafkagum? Oh, oh, truth, truth. And yeah. I need to keep it for the next three months. Okay. <laughs> Go on with your hagiographies. <laughs> All right, let's finish, let's finish up the introduction. Next section, Gary. All right. Uh, good Shabbos, good Shabbos. So Mazel Tov, Tani's currently at his cousin Moshe Klein's wedding. Uh, so Mazel Tov Moshe, to the family. Moshe, Moshe wow. Levitt Klein. You have to call him MLK. Sure. Uh, Moshe hey, with the Q. His name is MLK. He's MLK. Sure. He's not MLK Jr. He's the original MLK. We're not disagreeing. I'm saying sure. These are words of affirmation. Um, <laughs> and hopefully he and his wife will have a marriage as long as MLK Jr.'s entire life. Um, Mazel tov to Jerry Rubenstein on getting married uh, last Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Did you go? Did you go to the wedding, Joey? Did I go to the wedding? Like when I signed into work, I also had the Zoom wedding open. MVP of the wedding, obviously, if you've ever been to any Zoom event, was Joey Rubenstein's grandmother, who was uh, also Zoomed into the call from America. Um, was she like talking all the whole time? The whole time. It was, <laughs> it was very classic. Very classic. Just if, if, if you're going to talk about like how Rubenstein events would get organized and what you would think about a Joey Rubenstein wedding and how that would be. And just, I don't know, she's probably in her 80s, just an uh, 80-year-old using technology. It, it so just were, it, it hit all the highlights. So you were on the Zoom. Um, so Joey's grandmother was on the Zoom. Was Tani Levitt on the Zoom? The Tano Menasha Levitt, as far as I can tell, is not on the Zoom, but he is at a wedding in person right now. So if we're saying just like wedding attendance over the past seven days, I still think that Tani has me beat. 
Um, Mazel Tov. Oh, I'll let Arya take this one. <laughs> <laughs> I, it would be improper for me to do the announcements, I think. Um, Mazel Tov to Rami Eisman on getting married. Um, LCQ. Where is his bride from? I know the answer. Oh, you know the answer? Yeah, she's from Kent Mill. She's not just from Kent Mill. She's, she's from their neighbor. She's, she's from Rockford Street. She's from the same street as Rami Eisenman, which, yeah. uh, which really saves yeah. on just, yeah. I'm sure it makes a lot of things easy. I, I, I'm yeah. sure. Like, Aria, you could talk about being in a long distance relationship from DC to Kent Mill or mm -hmm. Israel to America or St. Louis to College Park. Like, it's convenient. Your marriage is more convenient living together than it was being a thousand miles away, no? Yeah, I mean, also, if you have, um, no, you, you know what? Never mind. No, no, you started. You started. You got to finish. No, 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 no. Continue. My sister, my, my, sister told, my sister told a great Rami Eisenman story, which I don't believe is true, but it's so good it has to be repeated. Rami Eisenman, he is, uh, he's definitely someone worthy of paleographies. No, no, I'm saying this is a goggle story. This is a goggle story about Rami Eisenman because, like, like, it might not be true, but they don't tell stories about, like, this about you and me. Um, but the story is that, um, that uh, Rami told his parents that he, was, that he was getting engaged, and his parents said, to who? As opposed to to whom? Well, it's funny, it's funny you say that because when Tali and I got engaged, her brother had the exact same reaction, but he was approximately nine years old at the time. So, but you guys been dating for you've been in her house like a million times. He's a small boy; he doesn't know about <laughs> marriage. Tell tell them about a friend of the podcast, Paul Denikoff, and his relation to um, Ethan Janice. <laughs> <laughs> for Wait. some time, I'm not sure exactly how long and when this ended, but for some time, Eitan Janice believed that Nathan Denikoff's father, Paul Denikoff, was in fact Adam Levine, lead singer of Maroon 5. <laughs> that, is, that is unbelievable. Um, what, a, what, what a piece of information. And Wait, then, Arya, before, would you... before we move on, before we move on from Wait, me, I wasn't moving on. <laughs> that okay. is not in the L spirit of today's episode. <laughs> we were staying on Rami Eisenman for a long time. <laughs> yeah, LCQ. Much LCQ like his wife, Bezra Hashem. <laughs> Unnecessary. Um, <laughs> LCQ for Arya. Yeah. Arya, which two people from Kent Mill does Joey LF's father believe that he is in a three-way relationship? Uh, from Kent Mill? Yes. So not Ami. Not yet. No. Um, like you and Nathan? You're dreaming if you think my dad knows that Ezra Newman exists. <laughs> <laughs> um, the correct answer is um, brother of the groom, uh, Judah Eisenman, and um, Hannah Warshawski. The reason for this being... Um, one time when um, my, my dog Reggie was alive, Zechrona Labrecha, um, I went on a walk with him uh, with Hannah Warshawski, like, like a few times, because like, she's very into dogs. She's a veterinarian. So that must mean that she and I are deeply in love. Mm -hmm. And on another separate occasion, several years later, um, my dad <laughs> saw uh, Judah Eisman talking to Hannah Warshawski at Shul, <laughs> which therefore means that Judah is in love with Hannah Warshawski. Hannah Orchowski is in love with me. Um, apparently, my love for Hannah Orchowski is unrequited um, in, the, in, this, in this scenario. Um, 
So when you're I, getting your dad on the podcast, I feel like you would have some pretty fire takes. My dad, my dad, my dad has not yet listened. Um, I don't think, A, I'm not quite sure if he knows his podcast. Exists. I definitely mentioned to him a few times. B, he keeps saying you need to show me how podcasts work, which like my dad is uh, currently like 80% of the way through a master's in computer science. <laughs> um, at like at Georgia Tech University, like a reputable university um, for, for such matters. Like mm-hmm. you'd think you know how to download any of a thousand LF apps um, to, to figure this out. Um, but the last point of Rami Eisman getting married, obviously. To him on getting a, an advanced degree at, a, at an older age, like, like some other people who, uh, with whom he's in good company. Such as? Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, if my... Yes, he got a PhD at the normal. He got the, he had a PhD at the normal age. R E A F. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you don't even subscribe to Ezra's comments thread on the Sometimes podcast. You lose, you lose things when you're listening on two times speed. I apologize. Um, but I want to ask you. So Rami Asmi is obviously a character, and that's why there's so many mice. As like his parents asking him, "To whom are you engaged?" Um, would you say that you being on the other side, that you are you've already been married for some time? Um, yeah. Would you say that it's more wild to you? when such people get engaged or like you just know like marriage is it's a normal part of life everyone's gonna do it eventually oh great i I actually do have a a pretty firm take on this one so i got when i got married i was 23 and tali was 21 and i don't know we were definitely on the younger side like most of my friends obviously weren't married but i thought like whatever it's fine but pretty much instantly after that when people that were that age would get married i felt as if it was like way too young to be getting married well, you hit puberty at age seven, so like. <laughs> who, who hit puberty first, R.A. Melman or Justin Deckelbaum? The oh. question is, who hit puberty first, R.A. Melman or Mark Melman? <laughs> uh, shout out to Mark Melman. Mark Melman, who missed the, uh, the senior Chapeton and had which member of his grade read the, oh, not Mark Melman. What's your brother's name? Indeed. Did you? We're people. <laughs> Sorry, I your dad and your brother. That's so bad. And I worked for your dad. We all worked for Arya's dad at one point or another. <laughs> I'm actually the only one that hasn't out of the three of us. Have you? Have you never? Have you never like done something for your dad and gotten any kind of allowance? Mm, he wasn't really. He didn't really know about the chores per se. So. Like, I think he wasn't really aware what, what the options were. I am sure there is something that you did on your father's behalf that in turn resulted in some sort of compensation or uh, material good. Uh, I guess existed and paid for Jewish day school. <laughs> More on that later. Next That's a PFT, Arya. That's a PFT. <laughs> <laughs> you, want to, you want to do this last Mazel Tov and finish the Mazel Tov section? Well, I don't know if this is a Mazel Tov per se, uh, but enemy of the podcast. I don't know who this guy is. Enemy of the podcast, Robbie Shore, um, got married last week, seven days ago. Who is enemy of the podcast, Robbie Shore? This is Arya. This is all yours. This is all yours. Robbie Shore is a wonderful young man. He is an educator at the Charles E. Smith Jewish Day School. Um, We went to college together, and Uh, he is his nemesis. He's also he's a friend of. Kumfuffle members, Mark Lee, Bianca Adler, maybe other people. Um, he, like, Wait, is allegedly. This, is, this, is, this, is this like an like, explicable 
nemesis, right? Like this. The like, first it's, time it's, I met, like, Joey like, did bite him. So no, I allegedly. So so, uh, <laughs> the, the, by far, by several standard deviations, the most drunk I've ever been was at Amitrano's wedding, um, because Amitrano he had a dry wedding, but there was um, but there was alcohol at the tish. So I probably did like eight or nine shots at the tish on empty stomach, um, which I guess is unadvisable. I, I, if I know then. So it's the only time in my life I ever blacked out. So I cannot confirm or deny the, the events as Robbie tells them. Um, but he claims, and I, I had no relationship with Robbie prior to Ami's wedding. Um, that I can confirm. And Robbie claims that at Ami's wedding, I bit him. I have no memory of biting him. I, I, I could say that I have no, I, I feel like I don't have any Yetzirah to bite people in general. So if, you, if you're of the school of thought that when you're drunk, you're doing the things that you're afraid to do when you're sober, A, I pretty much do everything when I'm sober anyway. B, I, I just feel like I've no yet to hurt to bite people. So there is a bit of a he said he has no he has no recollection uh, between this. Okay, okay, I <laughs> I want to make two points here. The first point is this clearly is a don't get along on a greater scale than the Daniel Wesley verse. Uh, whatever your friend from Maryland is, who doesn't get along, he never Joel. <laughs> Joel, yeah, Daniel Wesley versus Joel. That one makes no sense. This one clearly there's a reason for it. Second, it doesn't sound like Robbie Shore is an enemy of the pod. It sounds like Robbie Shore is someone we should have on the pod to talk about what he did, to, what you did to him, because I really want to hear that full story. You have <laughs> no memory of it. He's also a takesman. Uh, we could talk about uh, Robbie Shore. Have, have, you, have you spoken to him about what his task was for the summer? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Robbie Shore claims that people. Yeah, so Robbie Shore claims that um, he is capable with no external aids. If he just does some mapping people out into categories, he can list out minimum ten thousand people that he knows onto a piece of paper or onto like a word document, and he could recall just off the top of his head ten thousand people in one sitting. Um, he said he was going to do it over the summer. I haven't spoke to him, obviously, based on our feud. Um, obviously, like, if you're going to do it at any time in your life, coronavirus is the best time to do it. But 10,000 people, which is outrageous. He's saying, like, it counts if you can say, like, all you need to do is just be able to say, like, Abraham Lincoln um, freed the slaves. And, like, that counts as one of the 10,000 people. So saying, like, Joey Aleph hosts the Come Fulfill podcast, Ezra Newman, first alternate host, the Come Fulfill podcast. Um, all right, this is getting ridiculous. All right, all right. <laughs> Okay. Wait, 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 but we have big news. We have big news from our guest news? for the final Acharon Acharon Chaviv. Aryeh, would you like to share what, you, uh, what we found out right prior to recording? Oh, well. What do you I, mean right prior to recording? I've done this for weeks. Yeah, I mean, I didn't find out right prior to recording. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're the only one who found out right prior to recording. I've known for weeks. Aryeh, I just thought before. you knew. I, How I, would I know? I, I don't know. I assumed everyone was talking about it in the town. Yeah. Well, now we are. I specifically, I specifically didn't put anything in the agenda. If you didn't gather, um, Arya and Talia are expecting their first child. First child, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I did it. I, I, I guess they already married. Is that royalty-free music, Ezra? Before you start singing, so, um, <laughs> um, so I purposely didn't put this in the like Mazel I purposely didn't put any babies in the Mazel because I didn't want it to be awkward. Like I have no idea whether or not you're expecting. It's not my business. Um, but yeah, that, the shots of us. I thought that was the you-know-who-you-know-what thing to begin with. So. No, the you-know-who-you-know-what. There's actually three people I know uh, <laughs> with some tangential relationship to Kumfufl that are expecting children. I, don't think it's my, I just don't think it's my place to say uh, if, it's, if it's not known. And now, now we can move on. Now we can move on to... Bishatova to Aryeh. Some would say Mazel Tov. 
some would say some would would be bringing upon the evil eye into into the situation that we don't want to be doing that we don't want to some would say that the evil eye is mamish kishif so i mean we could uh (laughs) (laughs) oh man wait can i ask you a question joey joey what's the context of this question how would you rank the following three enemies of the pod robbie shore perry block david kravitz okay that's uh definitely uh an innate question. I would say that Robbie Shore is the only person that has a direct feud with a member of Kumfuffle. Even though I think our, our beef, our beef might be. I have a direct. Really feud, sure. I have a direct feud with David Kravitz. You have a personal. You have a personal. Yeah, one? going. It goes back to eighth grade. Go on. The floor is yours. <laughs> right, We're only twenty six minutes just, in. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we just had a big fight, and he never apologized, and he was a dick. Okay. Um, in eighth grade, so he was at bar mitzvah, so that 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 is on him. Um, so like, I would say the other two. I don't even I don't even have anything against the other two. Like I'm not friends with the other two, but I wouldn't say like I have any. I wait. I also have a direct conflict with Perry Block. What am I even saying? <laughs> that's true, but that's been, that's been discussed on the pod. So if you want to hear more about that, um, revisit no, no, that no, episode. We, we discussed that on the pod. We don't need to go into that. Yes, yeah, so we uh, we could revisit it in that episode itself. But now yeah. move on to the the questions with the defined context. Yeah, wait, but I, I think we're going to skip all the ones about my dad because they're kind of ridiculous. But um, <laughs> even though I put them in myself, but um, but I we do want to talk about our dads on this podcast, Ezra. <laughs> it's true. Arya and I have been put through, not to quote any other public podcast, but Arya and I have already been put through the ringer. Um, fine, it's now fine, your turn. Fine, fine. LCQ. We'll do an LCQ. After this LCQ, let's do the ad break though, before we get into the main topic. Wow, that's an early ad read. What okay. do you mean? It's been 26 minutes. Okay, but fine, 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 fine. You're the, you're the first alternate. Um, LC, LCQ. What does my dad refer to himself as in relation to KMS? And what does he refer to his wife, my mother, Naomi Baum, as? And it's not just ex-president? No, he's a term. I, I would guess it's President Emeritus. Yeah, that would have been no. my guess also. No. That's our, that's our guess. You got one guess at LCQs. He calls himself the IP, the immediate past president, and he calls her the flip, the first lady of the immediate past president. <laughs> what, um, what does uh, David Janis call himself? I think he has uh, blocked the entire experience out of his memory. <laughs> was, um, was he the IP to Saul Newman or was there someone in between? No, my dad took over after, uh, after uh, what's his name? After Stone, after Viva Stone's dad. Alec for delegate, yes. push it. What? what? Alec Stone for delegate, where have you been? Yeah, famously. <laughs> he famously took over after Alec Stone. You know, because the thing was, I don't know if you know the drama, but my dad, he was the vice president under Benham Dayanim, and he was supposed to take over afterwards, but then he didn't want to do it. Then Alec took over, and my dad was so frustrated with Alec that he was just like, screw it. And they cut Alex's term in half, and my dad took over for Alex. What's to be frustrated about? I mean, this, this could go more <laughs> into our discussion over church institutions, but I have gone to um, KMS in some regard for, the, for half my life at this point. I don't think I've noticed that, that anything was so different at any point. Like, yeah, there have been renovations. Obviously, there's been a mikvah, but um, like... <laughs> yeah, but, but were, you, were, you, were you there the weekend that uh, Elon Turrets got engaged and uh, Alex Stone gave a whole announcement about Elon Turrets? Oh, I think that was discussed on the podcast. Okay. I was, I was there, I think, actually, for that. Well, you're, yeah, you're as cut mills as anybody else at this point. Bye, Merrick. Yeah. 
All right. Like your, your children will be kept milk because it goes by the father, but. <laughs> <laughs> and because uh, going to be born in D.C., but all right. Let's get an ad, Joey. I want to hear an ad. Okay. Tired of wanting games? If you're listening to or hosting this podcast, chances are you're all alone in this world and craving even one more smooch before you end up in the pits of Sheol. So sign up for It Takes Two, Ba'av, Shadchanas Services. A Jew has one purpose in this world making more Jews. That is why we already used your listener data to sign you up for It Takes Two, Bob. Congratulations, you're already engaged to a man and or woman with a great personality and oh, can he and or she learn Torah and or cook? And did we mention as fertile as the Jordan Valley? Think you have a choice? Think again, this is a shachan wedding. So remember, it's not good for man to be alone. It takes two, Bob. That was that was good. I like I like um, I like shadchan wedding. I like shadchan wedding a lot. Also, like I thought of the phrase shadchan wedding, and that's what led to the whole um, mandatory aspect of the, yeah. of the of the engagement. I like I that's that's the best part of the ad, the, the shadchan wedding. I mean, there's a lot. There's not so many parts. Um, no, there's good part. That's the best. That's the best. <laughs> There's about four parts to it. Uh, okay, so my MCQ um, in regards to Jewish demographics. So I kind of uh, combined two eras, but uh, this is my best uh, approximation, my 14 seconds of research. In 1932, what percentage of the Jewish people um, were living in what we consider like Sparty countries, so Asia, Africa? Um, I would guess probably around 40%. I'd say like 30. 10. Really? Yeah, like I, I feel like our whole lives we were raised, I think like maybe it's because of the influence of Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch that like Sephardim were kind of half the story and Ashkenazim were half the story. And we we're also, I feel, taught that until very recently that Europeans and Christians were far more um, persecuting of Jews and Jews were relatively safe in Arab lands. So I, I'm, I'm curious how the numbers got to be so skewed in favor of Ashkenazim. Um, prior, even after the Holocaust, um, I mean, I would, I would say, I, I would say that there are, I would say two things in response, or three things in response to this. The first thing that I would say is that um, if you if you do learn Jewish history, there you do learn about the persecution that Jews faced at the hands of Muslims. Like in times of the Rambam, certainly even before the Rambam, the times of the creation of Islam, there's a, like a lot of persecution that's very historical. Assuming that the the Jews living in Spain and Africa were Jews and um, not. Uh, black Israelites that we'll get into later in the episode. Okay, I'll talk about that later, maybe. Um, the, the, um, the, the second thing that I would say in response to that is there were a lot of Sephardic Jews, and I guess I didn't really take this into account, but it's true. There were a lot of Sephardic Jews that lived in what we would consider to be Ashkenaz areas, um, but there were not a lot of Ashkenaz Jews who lived in Sephardic areas. So like, there weren't a lot of Sephardic Jews who lived in Iraq. Was like the mountain Jews? Because like the mountain Jews aren't such a... No, there were a lot of, there was a big, there was a big, so like there was a big, there's been a big Sephardic community for a long time in Amsterdam, right? Uh, there was a lot of the, a lot of the um, biggest, a lot of the first and largest communities in America were Sephardic, like Turo was Sephardic, um, the original shul in Charleston, uh, South Carolina was Sephardic. The Spanish-Portuguese like, synagogue. Spanish-Portuguese, right? Um, but we don't consider that to be like a Sephardic country. Um, and the third thing that I would say was that I think this is, you kind of indicated this as well, that um, Sephardim have had to a certain extent an outsized influence on the like intellectual slash 
publication part of Judaism. Like, obviously, there are a lot of Ashkenazim, um, but the, like, if you think about the major books, like I kind of, we were actually talking about this on the Slack last night. Like, I delineated what I think to be the three most important works of the last like a thousand years in Judaism, which are Rashi's commentary, the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, and Shulchan Aruch. And two of those three are, are written by Sephardim. Now, obviously, that's like a really small sample size. But like Sephardim did have a very outsized influence in terms of literature. And that can kind of lead to people like me making the mistake and assuming that they're higher numbers. I would just like to make 12 quick points in response. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, but I think like Joey, it's possible. I mean, I, I don't know. This is like something that someone would have to look into and not speculate wildly about on a podcast. But like, that's, not, that's not what we're about. We're about the speculation. <laughs> It's possible that, like, even if that number was 10% in, like, 1932, it was different than that in, like, 1100. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, but, uh, but in 1100, there was crusades of the Grums happening to the Jews and Ashkenaz, which I feel like are pretty heavily talked about. I mean, that's right. I mean, there obviously was a Spanish Inquisition. Um, there are obviously crusades no, affected Sephardi Jews also. Like, no, no but, I, but, I'm saying, but I'm saying, like, you don't, but I'm saying, like, if you... People don't learn this in school. I mean, you're right in that people don't learn this stuff in school. But like that later. Documented if you talk about the the Almohad massacres, right? Like, do you learn about you? Do you know about the Almohad massacres? I, I'm certainly aware of them, but you can go more into it. <laughs> the phrase rings a bell. It's definitely so like, it's definitely so like, bell ringing. <laughs> so like, well, that's what the Rambam was running away from when the Rambam ran away to Egypt from southern Spain. The reason why he ran away from Andalusia to Egypt was because the Almohads, who were a Moroccan Muslim semi-caliphate entity, were forcing Jews to convert or massacring them. And the Ramam wrote his famous letter, Igarit Hashmad, which was specifically directed towards North African Jews who were faced with these massacres by the Almohads. All right. I mean, there's also just um, like... In America and the West World in general, there's definitely a, Europe, a Europeanization of history. Like we took, we all took um, European history as a dedicated course in high school, and we never took anything on Near Eastern or Far Eastern history or anything like that. So well, you, I mean, didn't take, you didn't take you didn't take world history with Dr. Ryan. By definition, if we took European history, we did not take world history. That's we the curriculum of school. With Dr. Ryan. Wait, so when That's you true. say we. So when you say we all, are you implying that all listeners of the Kumfuffle podcast were people who were in the honors um, section of history at the Bourbon Hebrew Academy? Yes. <laughs> and if they weren't before, they are now. <laughs> That's the new demographic. The new yeah. demographic is Talmidim and Talmidot of Jacqueline Freed. To be uh, fair, I think we did in eighth grade take world history, so we should have covered everything. No, we took Jewish history in eighth grade. Well, Aleph, do you think that this is a problem with the academics that we received at our Mount North? Look at you. Look at you. Look at you. When you say that when you say that we didn't have proper <laughs> historical teaching, are you saying that this is something that's problematic specifically with our modern Orthodox day school? Right, whether that be the Jewish Day School or the Berman Hebrew Academy or no other day schools that are represented in this in this fantasy football league, except maybe Maya Note. Um, so first of all, the the name of this segment is Vidibarta Baum, uh, <laughs> talking about Ezra Newman's family history and their relationship to Jewish Day School. So uh, Ezra, I mean, my mom went. My mom went to public school, so. Right, um, that's something that I think is definitely unique when we get into um, New York versus other areas. I think especially um, the, the D.C. metropolitan area, I think is a very high percentage of children of Bali Chuva. 
um, or people whose parents didn't go to Jewish day school one way or another, which I think is much different in New York, New Jersey. Um, so um, Ezra posed the question, he took away one of my agenda items, replaced it with uh, what's the biggest problem in your opinion of modern Orthodox day school? So I'm going to reintroduce my question. Um, in terms of the secular education that we should reasonably, and I've talked about this with some of the listeners already, in terms of secular education that we should reasonably expect um, when we're paying 20 plus grand for um, private school, do you think it's fair that we're saying, oh, if we're as good as Northwood, as we're as good as the public schools that we otherwise would have gone to, is that acceptable? Or does the fact that we're spending money, even if we're spending money primarily on the small classes or the Jewish part, does that still demand that we should have an education exceeding um, public school? I think our education is better than theirs. Like I, like I went- that doesn't, have, that doesn't answer the question what the expectation should be. No, I mean, but I'm saying like your, your point. So I, the reason why I rephrased your question like this is because I, I think that we should be discussing like what you think the, the biggest problem with modern Orthodox day schools are. And I think that one of your answers is one of the biggest problems is that their secular education level is not good enough. But I don't think that's fair. Like you phrased it as a question of we can all agree that their secular education level is not good enough. But I don't agree with that. Like I think there's, I think most modern Orthodox Jewish day schools, uh, even outside of New York, have just as good, if not better. I think sometimes better than. So I think in in the personal case, I mean, obviously they're. Like, you have to remember that we live in a really, really. I mean, not RA, but me and you, Joey and I, and most of the Kumfufu listeners grew up and currently live in a very weird, um, like, place. Montgomery County is weird in that we have, in our county, seven of the top 100 ranked public schools in the country, right? So you can legitimately- you have that on top of your head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Newsweek, <laughs> Newsweek publishes a list every year. Newsweek publishes a list every year. But- um, I have to commit um, to memory every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind, of like, like, kind of like I memorized 10,000 people so that I can write them down. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but, um, but it's weird because like when we think about it, we're like, oh, I could have gone to Blair and been in the magnet program, or I could have gone to Richard Montgomery. And like, that's kind of how we, like we're measuring our modern Orthodox day schools education against the education of some of the best public schools in the entire country. But when our education is as good as theirs, that means our education is as good as some of the best public schools in the entire country. So I don't think it's really fair to frame so it that What way. I think is unique about what, um, what our schooling was, or at least... Um, you're not my grade, but I can speak to me and Arya specifically. I think that our teachers were either far better than what you'd get at public school, like Ms. Johnson or Mr. Rogers. Or Ms. Freed. Or Ms. Freed. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, like, you, I don't think you're ever going to find anyone like her at a public school. But, um, no. <laughs> um, or we have, there's so much turnover. Like, we already mentioned Dr. Ryan, like Dr. Johnson, people only last a year. <laughs> so, obviously, you, if a teacher only lasts a year... You don't think that turnover? You don't think that turnover happens at public schools? There are so many public schools where their teacher is some random, out of wide-eyed, out-of-college kid who shows up doing Teach for America for two years and then leaves and gets replaced with a new wide-eyed college kid who comes to Teach for America for two years. Like that happens That's in definitely so many fair. public schools across the country. I think I tend to agree with Ezra in that. I mean, like speaking for myself, I feel like I did get a pretty good secular education, and I, I don't know. I think the three of us, like, generally are are like we're able to like make that education work for us and it it definitely can be uneven um like there definitely can be times where you get a teacher and you're like yeah this i'm just not gonna learn really like this subject for this year i like there's the fact that um in ap calculus that like i think there's like a dozen people in the class my year and only two people took the exam yeah but 
Yeah, but my year there were like a 15 people and everybody took. So like, yeah, Joey, right. I think our year was a little unique. <laughs> yeah, I'll say, I'm a big defender of our year. I think our year, if you like take the median, turned out better than most other years. Yeah, I mean, listen, my my so like think about think about AP European history. Now, obviously, we had an amazing teacher, right? We had Mrs. Free, which is who's great. But there were 15 kids in my year in AP European history, and another um, number you just have on top of your head. Yeah, I remember it very well. I know all these things. And we had we had 14 kids out of 15 get fives, and one kid got a four, right? Miss Reed told us afterwards that like 14 people got fives and one person got a four, right? It's a, ter- okay. a terrible thing to tell a class because then you're all going to try to figure out who got the four, and that person's <laughs> going to feel terrible. So like, really, you should never say that to a class. But the fact is it's that- It's like Dr. Ryan, after every quiz, proposed like the top five scores on the board with their names and the score. Dr. Ryan gave me increased points because even though I got straight like B's on the multiple tests, I was consistent. So he bumped me up. <laughs> doc, doc, Dr. Ryan was the Hebrew Academy tennis coach the year that he was at the, he started the Hebrew Academy. Which is not something you're going to get at Blair. <laughs> no. I mean, listen, I think... I Blair, think you're going to get Steve Francis as an alumni. You're going to get NBA players. You're not going to get NBA players out of our coaching guy, Steve Ackhammer. <laughs> I mean, listen, I think, I think if you're going to ask, like, does the secular education of, um, does the secular education of um, uh, modern Orthodox day schools, like, let's look at the Hebrew Academy as an example, right? Does it match up to Blair's Magnet Program or Richard Montgomery? Or, like, if you want to go in, like, New York, like, Bronx Science? Like, no. Or maybe- what, let's just say that um, we're allocating... Like just for the sake of argument, I think when we were there, it was around twenty grand a year to go to the academy. So let's just yeah. say, just for the sake of how they, just for simplicity, how they um, allocated resources, that ten was spent on um, secular subjects, ten was spent on Judaic subjects. Yeah. So um, not just public schools. Is it? I, I'm I'm asking, what's the standard? Should the standard be what ten thousand dollars would get you a year going to a private school in terms of education you receive, or should the standard be what you get you at can't go school? to a You can't go to a good private school for 10,000 a year. Like if you want to go to Horace Mann, for example, which is like one of the best private schools in, in New York, right? you're paying 50 or 60,000 a year. Yeah, I'm not even saying the best public school. I'm not saying like, should we expect Georgetown Prep or anything like that? I could also list schools. I mean, did you really know what the quality of the education at like Northwood or some other place like that is like? Like, no. is it terrible? Is it fine? Is it great? Like, yeah. We're speculating, I, but- I think, I think honestly, Joey, I think this is a red herring. I think the, the biggest problem um, with modern Orthodox day schools um, is not the, um, the secular education. I don't even think it's the religious education. I think it's the value system that kids come out of modern Orthodox day schools with. And I think this kind of gets to a point you wanted to talk about later, but I think it's really important because I think that most, I think if not most, if not all modern Orthodox day schools haven't figured out the right balance of values and the best way of conveying those values to people. And I see so many people who come out of modern Orthodox day school, um, either thinking that they like, like, I think the the most obvious one, the most obvious one is sexism. When you talk about sexism in um, like a modern Orthodox day school environment, because I think that there is generally a tendency amongst teenage boys to be sexist. To be pieces of shit, you could just. Uh... Yeah, I think I think that's <laughs> generally a tendency. I think that's generally a tendency of teenage boys. Um, and then when you put them in an environment where um, you're giving them 
not only license, but in a certain sense, like explaining that it's a religious obligation for them to be better than women. Because it's never, it's never different. Like it's never taught in modern Orthodox day schools to men that men and women are different. Maybe it's taught to women that men and women are different, but it's taught to men that men are better, right? Because the rebellion or the people in high school want to get the teenage boys to follow Judaism. And so they kind of like, they, they kind of like use the teenage boys' inherent sexism to try to get them to do Judaism, right? Judaism says you're better, right? You like being better, don't you, 15-year-old boy, right? So therefore, you should do the tzitzit thing because you're, you can do it and women can't. Eh, 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 eh. And like, that's a huge problem, right? I think like that, honestly, like, especially speaking as someone who went through, like, like mon- as, as a boy went through modern Orthodox day school, right? I think um, like that is an example of how modern Orthodox day schools haven't figured out how to convey values. Like, how do you express a religion that inherently believes that men are women indifferent to teenage men and women without kind of making one of them sexist and the other one group sexist and the other group check out? Right. And also just one of the inherent difficulties, and it goes along with what you're saying, is just that inherently in an all Jewish school, um, regardless of what your denomination is, there's going to be that lack of diversity, right? Like, even the most fundamental level, like we were talking about already, like Sephardi Ashkenazi diversity. Right, like we had the Francos, and that was a novelty. Or like when Mark Dweck lanes, right? David Schmoyan. Yeah. Mark Dweck laning was the greatest thing ever. Right, it's such. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's make sure that Nusach is royalty free. Um, so, <laughs> um, right, so it's such a novelty. Even that fundamental level of we are all Orthodox Jews, and even that level of diversity was so um, was so rare. So, like you're talking men, women, diversity, just the, all of that. So we're sort of like built to be in a in a gang, so to speak. That Jews like that sort of chosen people um, narrative that. Um, that it goes along with what you're saying that um, with that lack of diversity of people that you're with, there's also a lack of diversity of thought. And I think this sort of goes to maybe both of what you're saying, but really I think like it's, it's funny because I feel like I graduated from a modern Orthodox high school, but I don't know that at that time I could have given you a great definition of like what modern Orthodoxy like was or like what sort of the content of modern Orthodoxy that they were trying to convey was. And maybe- That's a PFT. Maybe I like, you know, pick, it's, it's there implicitly and everything, but we didn't like well, get into that. Yeah, like, I don't think it is there implicitly. And this is something um, else I want to talk about. I mean, I have, I have some people that listen to the podcast. Some people maybe on the podcast um, do have personal problems. But I have nothing personally against um, people like Rabbi Schultz, Rabbi Grossberg. But at the end of the day, they do not subscribe to the belief system, either of modern orthodoxy, which is um, one thing, or the parents that send their kids to Berman or schools like that which is something separate from unorthodoxy, in my opinion. Um, they, 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 they don't, they're, not, they're not in that Venn diagram at all. Like, they're not in the parents section. They're not in the monoorthodoxy section. They're certainly not in the overlap. They're completely outside of it. And like what I was just talking about, um, saying like, um, oh, Judaism sort of teaches that men are better, for example. And that, like, there was that gamification of CISIS. Like, I remember I was only in there for eighth grade middle school, middle school and we had the CISIS requirement. But there was the gamification like, oh, today they're doing CISIS checks. Let me grab it for my locker. Um, and they're like, oh, high school doesn't require CISIS. Now we get to do that. Or like um, in Davening, I realized that when Rabbi Levitt, like scanning for tefillin, he's only scanning for Shell Roche. I'd only put on my Shell Roche. <laughs> well, when, when Rav Lapian famously went up to Ben Zwillinger and gave him some chizuk motion and put his arm around him, and Ben just turned to him and said, like, putting your arm around me isn't going to make me want to daven more. <laughs> 
Right. And that's something else I was like thinking about in like the problems. The fact that the uh, Ravlopian, who the Kolel is like supposed to be the top share, like that's the most you can get in terms of Jewish education is being a Ravlopian share. The Tormitzi and Kolel, they're an Israeli propaganda organization first and then <laughs> rabbi second. Right. So even like the creme de la creme for we're trying to give you the most we can offer you in terms of what modern Orthodox education has to has to offer. That still just comes down to, oh, you better love Israel. Everyone doesn't love Israel is a bigot. Yeah, and I, I, I will say also that I do kind of want to add to this. I think this does go directly into the next point. So another PFT move by uh, Joey. A lot there of people here. But Rabbi Lapian really is like, like, I know a lot of people who have been involved both administratively and as like actual shlichim of Termitio and Kolo. And Rabbi Lapian is literally the best. Like he is one of the top level Termitio and Kolo rabbis that you could possibly have. He like is actually a good educator. Right, like he can actually teach, which cannot be said about a lot of other Tarmitian Kol educators. But the thing is, right, that again, Joey's right, which is that he's brought in first and foremost to, you know, get people to love Israel, and specifically to get people to love Israel through a Da'atilumi religious Zionist lens, right? Um, and um, but really, but yeah. really, mostly just a select group of boys in the class who are in the highest year, also. Yeah. And I mean, also, like, give a shit. Like, <laughs> like, I remember, I remember when I was in, when I, like, I used to drive my brother to, like, carpool when I was, when my brother was in high school, but my sister and I were both out already. Sometimes if I was home, I would drive him to school and then, like, go daven in school in the morning. Um, and, like, sometimes I would go learn in Kolal or something in the morning. Um, and I remember that my, 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 my brother was in Kolal, he'd come home and I'm parents would hear like some of the things that like they would say in Kolal. And like people would say some like pretty sexist things in Kolal because again, not they were trying to be sexist, they were just 16 year old boys, right? And my parents would be like horrified and they were like, did these things get said when you were in Kolal? I was, I was, yeah, because like they're 16 year old boys and they're also, led by like 20 year old Israeli Kolal guys. <laughs> yeah, 23, yeah, 23. The, the Kolal guys also are certainly, they're not Talmud HaChachamim. <laughs> but at yeah, least they're, 20, they, they're, they're 23 year olds who want to come to America for a year. Right. And, like, but at least they, um, I mean, you could um, delineate between uh, Zionism and modern orthodoxy, but like, at least they, compared to Rabbi Shields and Rabbi Grossberg, do, they think, they think within the Venn diagram of what the parents believe and what modern orthodoxy espouses. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I think, I think, it, I think it does get to this, this, this point that you're recalling the, the Seth Rogen debate, right? Which um, get the lot. First of all, no, the, no, we're the gonna word, go go, word settle the Seth Rogen debate is there very deliberately. It was just supposed to be settled this debate, and that the word settle is very deliberately there. And I feel like you like, uh, you know, no, yeah. we can't, you can't just settle a debate without having it. You have to have the debate. Israel, settle. Come on, man. <laughs> oh, I see. You're making a joke about settlers. Right. I didn't uh, get it. Not as good as your Bill Blank- Blankson joke. <laughs> <laughs> what about Vicky Bartabaum? Martha Baum is okay. Bill Blackmon <laughs> is the best. Um, also from Fuffle. From Fuffle has its core. I'm very proud of. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think I think I think you're right, which is I think that I think that Seth Rogan is right and he's wrong. He's right in the sense that I think we can all agree that certainly our experience and probably most modern Orthodox uh, Jews school people modern Orthodox Jews experience with modern Orthodox school is a particularly non-nuanced and very raw, raw expression of Israel and Zionism. 
you're not really getting, I mean, like, like the, the vast majority of debates and like interesting nuanced discussion that I received um, when I was growing up about Israel came at either my parents' Shabbos table with the Makovskis whenever the Makovskis came over, right? Um, or we went to them, or when Maimon Rose would decide he was bored and try to pick a, pick a fight with 23-year-old Kolo guys, right? And like, that was it, right? Like, other than that, th- those were the only two dissenting opinions or really any sort of like mitigating opinions that I ever received on Israel was like my parents talking to the Makovskis and Maimon Rose arguing with 23-year-old Israeli Kolo guys. And I think that is a problem, but I would like to say in response to Seth Rogen, like... I think he's a listener, actually. Ever, what? I think he's a listener, actually. So I, I listen, think he's a listener. I listen yeah. to his interview with Mark Maron. It's the least he can do. I, I, I watched American Pickle. So I did two things. I did two things this week for him. He could do one for me. Yeah. I mean, but like there is, there should be just some expectation that, that I mean, listen, I, I personally think that the way we teach children can be more nuanced. Like, I think that people who are teenagers can handle more nuance. I don't think that we have to dumb things down for them. But in reality, things get dumbed down for kids. And you're supposed to kind of go out in the world and like it's it's the it's it's synthesis it's it's um it's thesis antithesis synthesis you're supposed to learn something and when you learn something else you're not supposed to like be like oh well why did i only learn this thing and i didn't learn this thing this thing must be wrong and this thing must be right like no you're supposed to analyze the two of them and come to a right, but the, the opposite is just as true i would say that just as high a percentage of people not even maybe even higher but um it is just as reasonable to come out with a seth rogan outlook of oh not everything I was taught about Zionism is true. Therefore, everything I learned about Zionism is false. It's also um, fair to say that, like, I, I've talked to a couple of people this week that said things along the lines of um, any value to a Palestinian um, point of view is completely based in rhetoric and lies. Everything they're saying is wrong. Everything I was taught is true. And those are things that people come out of the academy believing. No, I, I, know, I know people come out of the academy believing that, but I'm saying, like, I'm saying, like, that's a problem. I agree that it's a problem. I think that there I think they're the same problem, really. I, no, I agree. I think there needs to be, I think there's, yeah, oh, it's two sides of the same coin, right? There's no nuance, right? And there needs to be more nuance, right? But I think personally that people have the ability to add that nuance themselves and they don't need to either accept everything at face value or reject everything at face value. Right, like, and that's why... That's, that's I think why Ari, I brought Ari up this. Wants to uh, say something. We're like, we keep going over and not letting Ari talk. I know. <laughs> I just, this sort of, I, I, I think I have a grand kind of unified theory about this, which is okay, about it's all yours. Judaism and Israel, which is that in sort of modern Orthodox schools or that context, teachers, ad, administrators, administrators, et cetera, are sort of afraid to teach like nuance of it because they're afraid that if they, Tell, teach the students some sort of nuance or some sort of flaw in the system or whatever, they'll like grow to reject it. And I think that's probably an unfounded fear. It's for the, the opposite, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. But I think, I think that, that, that that affects like both of those things. And so they're like, oh no, like everything in the Torah is like literally true. And if anyone tells you otherwise, they're like not orthodox or not religious or whatever. And then, you, you know, you get older, you, you learn things, you learn like very respectable people who believe certain things. And you're like, oh, maybe like, that's not true. And I think, and I think that like, it, a, a more sort of nuanced perspective from the beginning can be helpful. And I also think that, like, I, I don't know about intellectual childhood intellectual development, but like, I think even like second graders and third graders, you can, you don't need to teach them that the Torah is literally true, you could teach them the nuanced stuff. And like, 
hopefully they'll there's, you know, there's only there's only there's only one thing there's only one thing that third graders need to learn when learning Chumash. Rashi says Rashi. <laughs> Was that one of your tapes, Arya? No, it's, it's Mrs. Arzwan. It's Mrs. Arzwan. Well, you were in parents' grade. You, uh, you missed out on a true educational experience. Yeah, so I mean, the, the reason I brought up the, this uh, Pasuk from Tehillim, uh, Oh, how I love your teaching. It's my study all day long. Um, that's in the introduction of my, uh, my Jewish study Bible, written by Kent Mill's own Adele Berlin. And, yeah, um, uh, LCQ, or MCQ, I guess. Uh, which, uh, which street does Adele Berlin live on in Kent Mill? That's an HCQ if you're asking it. That's yeah. my HC hint. <laughs> yeah, it's obviously Lovejoy. She lives three hours out for me. Okay, continue. Um, so I think that in, in all these contexts, so like Maimon Rose, um, even if he was doing it in a rebellious spirit, he, was, um, he had a desire to learn more about Israel and he was able to get a more nuanced picture out of it. So I think it's the same thing if you want to be, if, you, if the Academy wants to produce Matthew Critz or even Gabe Gross, who are people that are um, involved in Torah in a serious way, even during their high school education, um, they need to have that, um, that interest from an outside source. It, it, like, I don't think that there's anything that will come from within. And I think that that lack of nuance really is a big part of it, at least in my experience. Because I think like a lot of, when I was in high school, I was just like rebelling without even knowing what I was rebelling against. So like- You mean I, you were a rebel without a cause? Uh, but I think I had a cause. I think that the issue was that I just didn't have the vocabulary to really, um, because I just wasn't taught the things that I knew were the issues. I mean, um, this is obviously like much different, but um, my mom tells me that there were kids that were in high school with her that didn't realize they were gay just because they didn't have the vocabulary to understand what sexuality is as a spectrum. So I didn't have the vocabulary to really express what my issues were with Judaism. And I didn't know how to seek it out, especially in that like pre-smartphone age. So I was just very very prone to say everything about this is shit. Like I spent a, a long time just saying like, I'm fully devoted to America and completely against Israel just because like, I, I knew I had issues. I just couldn't express um, what they were. And I mean, it's since then- When certain kinds of questions are sort of like deemed off limits and like a whole, like the, the type of question that sort of gets at like what underlies the whole like structure and belief and everything, you feel like you can't really ask. But how are they, how are they, well, I, don't I, know if, I, I don't know if this is true, but I mean, like there's certainly stories I think even talked about on the podcast that for example, um, Rabbi Shields is in favor of um, gay conversion therapy, which I don't know, I don't have as a first party source. But if that's have, true. I don't, have, I don't have that as a first party source either. But, but if, that, if, if that's true, um, how can you, how can you even begin? So if that's the person who's giving you your introduction to Judaism, Where's even the starting point, right? If you want to, if you want to talk about source theory, documentary hypothesis, or anything like that, what you were talking about, um, in terms of the validity of the Torah, Rabbi Grossberg and Rabbi Shields, though I think that their hearts in the right place, I think they're smart people, I think they're educated people, they are just not equipped to talk about it. Let's talk about that for a sec, because I think actually Arya brought that up, and I think it actually, I think these two issues, I think are two issues that really kind of have to be discussed together, which is nuance when teaching about literacy of the Torah, or literalness of the Torah, and nuance when teaching about Israel, right? Um, and I think that it's interesting because I think we can all agree that there is a lot of nuance and you don't get that nuance in high school. But I also think that our high school. We, have to, we have to think about um, what is the responsibility, podcast. right? What, what, is the res- what is the responsibility of high schools to teach those things, right? So like I remember when I was in Shana Aleph, like that was the big thing all anybody could talk about was how, why didn't we learn biblical criticism in high school? Why didn't we learn biblical criticism in high school? Right. And like, I still strongly believe that 
modern orthodox high schools, even though I think they shouldn't be as strong on like everything is literally true. Um, and, but by the way, I, in my experience, the academy, we were not taught that. Um, this is actually did teach it a bit, but, um, yeah, I mean like, but I think that, I think that like, I still don't think that the Hebrew Academy or other modern Orthodox high schools have an obligation to teach biblical criticism. I think, I don't think that they do. Like, it's not something that they, that they believe in. I don't think they have an obligation to teach it. I think if people, if people want to go out and learn biblical criticism, I think people have an obligation to not, not treat things like Seth Rogen and just take everything as black and white. Right, like, oh well, this professor said it; it must be true. Like, I think you have to look at everything critically. And if you come out believing biblical criticism, great, that's fine. If you come out not believing it, also great, that's also fine. But I really do not believe that modern Orthodox high schools have an obligation to teach biblical criticism. You froze there, um, but I'll say I don't think that they have an obligation to teach um, biblical criticism per se. I think that they do have an. Um, so I mean, it's definitely thorny just because they have to that their main customer is the parents. So they just need to teach what will make the parents happy. Um, and that's why Zionism is so um, heavily taught because, do you think Ezra can hear us? Oh. Yeah, it'll come or he won't. Um, I think that's why Zionism is so heavily taught because I think what the, the main topic that pretty much all the parents at our school agree in is that Israel is amazing. Um, especially like that pretty much all our parents are coming from that 1967 generation where the Six Day War was such a miracle victory. I think that oh, really- Oh, I'm back. Really, I'm back. Yeah, back. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll read, you'll find out what we said when you listen. <laughs> Wait, where did, where did I, where did I stop talking? Like, where did you lose me? Um, fine, fine, fine. We'll go back. If, if, do you think we're going to have Tani edit this? We'll find out. If Tani edits this, he could cut this part out. Um, you were still talking about um, whether they have a responsibility to teach biblical criticism. Yeah. No, I'm saying, but like, what part of that did you lose me at? <laughs> I don't know. You, you're kind of saying the same thing a couple times over. So, I mean, um, I was saying that um, they're responsible they're not responsible for teaching biblical criticism. They're responsible for keeping the parents happy. Um, and that's why they're such, I think there's such a heavy focus on Zionism. But I think just to be intellectually responsible as a human being, you need to let the students know that everything is a nuanced topic and that you have to let everyone know what they will encounter. And you got to give them the vocabulary just so they can know what's out there. And even if they're not te teaching, like, I don't think they have to teach biblical criticism. Right, per how much do they teach like, biblical criticism? Because how well are they teaching the Chomesh justice shot? Yeah, I mean, but but it's just like sort of like understanding that that approach is out there that that is, uh, you know, a way and also like, I mean, there's a lot of biblical commentators that treat biblical criticism in yeah. like an effective way. And so like you can teach those sources and like that's, I think, a much better uh, solution than just like pretending that it doesn't exist and then leaving someone to sort of encounter it in the yeah, wild I mean, later. I actually felt I had that with Rabbi Levitt. Like I had, I had Rabbi Levitt for Brashit. And Rabbi Levitt very strongly made clear that he did not think it was a necessary belief to believe that every that all the stories in Breshit literally happened, right? We spent a lot of time doing a lot of like literary analysis. I mean, with Rabbi David Foreman, because everything Rabbi Levitt that had to be with Rabbi David Foreman. But but I thought that that was actually a very effective way of teaching Chumash, right? Trying to focus on the literary aspects of Chumash, trying to focus on how to understand Parshanut trying to focus on moral messages that come out of stories from Breshit and not focusing on like, did this literally happen or did this not literally happen? Right, and that makes sense because- That saying. comes back to what we were talking about earlier because it's, it's kind of problematic if that's uneven, right? Like that sounds like a great class, a great approach and everything, but if like only some people are getting it sometime, like whenever, just only whenever they're not able to hire a Chumash teacher in time and Rabbi Levitt is like drafted into teaching Chumash for a year, then like that's the only time when you get that kind of education that, that 
it's kind of a problem. Right. I think it comes back to staffing. Like Rabbi Levitt, obviously, as principal, was able to set the ideal of what the Hushkafic um, teaching of the school should be. So Rabbi Levitt was somebody who's educated, um, capable of conveying his message, and had a modern orthodoxy Hushkafa. So he's able to teach along those lines. Um, and I think, it's, think it comes down to a staffing issue where it's just hard to find people like that, obviously. And that's do you, why. Do you, think, do you think Rabbi Levitt was a good principal or a bad principal? He's the only principal I've ever had. So I have no, I have no frame of reference. Like I have all these problems with the school. So obviously I have issues with him yeah. at some point or another. Yeah, I feel, I feel like it's bad that we didn't have someone from JDS on this pod. Because the JDS people, Gavi's, Gavi's not going to be thrilled with this. Gavi gets what he wants. He gets what he gets. He doesn't get upset. Well, Gavi's not, not going to listen to it. Gavi's not going to listen to it anyways because it's not on Google Podcasts. It is on Google Podcasts. I think it just takes longer to get it there. Anyway, I'm moving on. Wait, moving on. wait, wait LC, LCQ though, before we end this section, LCQ, where is Rabbi Levitt now? I believe he's in Florida. Yeah. Do you know which school he's at in Florida? Weinbaum. Weinbaum. Do you know which of my former roommates went to Weinbaum? <laughs> I do not. Josh Kobe Stadlin. Josh Stadlin. Um, yeah, I mean, what's your, what's your punk club? Was he a good principal? What's your, uh, what's your TLDR? Yeah, both you. Yeah. I don't think he deserves the hate that he gets. I thought, I thought, I thought he, he gets a lot of hate, but I think that's sort of just what happens when there's so many, um, just restraints on what you can do within the context of being a modern Orthodox school. Like you can't yeah. fully no, teach your Hushkafa. You, know, you can't staff your Hushkafa. You know which family I know hates him the most? The Shores? The Rabinowitzes. Do you know why? He's a bad neighbor? He, he wouldn't let the, he wouldn't let the uh, Kobe and the town skip grades in math. <laughs> really? Yeah. But Kamfufa member Jesse Schloss got to? That does seem unfair. <laughs> um, I, think, I think he was like... You know, I, I, I think he was good. I think most of the hate, at least that I remember him getting, was just that he was too, like, stiff and unfun, which I think is, mm-hmm. like... Yeah, true. You know, he's a high school principal. Like, like yeah, I'll if, say that. I, how do you guys feel? Stuff. I think we're all, we were all on three different tiers. Um, like, I think, Ezra, you were one of the people that was actively seeking out opportunity. Um, Arya, I think you were, like, you were in the fold. And uh, I had my own thing going on. So <laughs> my group of friends did not name ourselves after any uh, chemical <laughs> organizations. So <laughs> um, Wait, what was Arya's group of friends named? I didn't even named? do that, Ezra. That's so weird. <laughs> Ari, what, was you, what was your group of friends named, Arya? The Octet. <laughs> That's terrible. Yes. I think I was there when Robert thought of it. I, like, I, I remember like, it was in Miss Cohen's class, another one-and-done teacher we had. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just think, like, how do you feel just... In terms of why I think he did have a direct influence, is what do you think was the individual attention you got during your school? Because I think that's what it really comes down to of where you'll end up. Individual like, attention from Rabbi like, Levitt? Not I from Rabbi Levitt, but I think just from the staff in general. Like, do you feel like, like I feel like I was kind of left on my own, and this is that's what it comes down to. If I wasn't seeking out opportunities, I don't think they were coming to me. Which I think that like one of the advantages of having small classes is that you show that expectation where teachers are looking out for your well-being. Um, but, I think, like, but I think it, I think it, I think it goes both ways. Like I think that I had a lot of personal attention from Miss Johnson, Mrs. Freed, and Rabbi Lapian, and I think that that was really helpful for me in high school. But I also think I got that personal attention because I was a suck up and like a goody two shoes. Right, right. So that's why I said you actively sought out opportunities, and I was perfectly yeah. happy at the time to do my own thing. Um, yeah. 
So that's what it comes down to. I mean, it, you get what you put in, and how fair yeah. is that? I guess yeah. I, I guess I kind of come in in the middle of that, as you suspected, Joey, which is that I, I feel like I, I don't I didn't necessarily have like close personal relationships with like any of the teachers, but I think I did, you know, want to like figure out who the best teachers were and like try and get into be in their classes as opposed to classes with like the less good teachers. Um, and not that I like had such close personal attention in those classes, but I did want to be with like Miss Johnson, Mr. Rogers, Miss Freed, Miss Kosowski, et cetera, rather than other people who we can name or not name. I mean, I still, I still go visit Rabbi Lapin every time I go to Israel. I see him every time I go to Israel. Tell him that Arya and I have beef. <laughs> <laughs> will do, will do. Honestly, he always asks me, he always asks me about his former students, where they are. Well, you can tell him that I, despite his attempts to expel me, graduated from the <laughs> academy. <laughs> and then he'll say, and then he'll say, is Joey still from? And I'll say, yeah. According to Ezra Newman, Joey Elf is very much on the derech. I think you are on the derech, 100%. <laughs> uh, this is another question. Uh, this is a very Kumpfuffle-based question. Arya, you could chime in. Uh, Ezra is obviously the, the most Jewish person in Kumpfuffle. Um, the question is, who's second place, me or Jason? Jason gets a lot of points for being treasurer of Kesher. <laughs> However, I did write a Dafa Gamara yesterday. Oh, you just wrote that yesterday? Yes, sir. Yeah, he wrote it between like 11.30 and, and 1 o'clock or something. No, <laughs> <laughs> so you're pretty Jewish, I have to say. He's no, no, he's very Jewish. I would describe him as very Jewish. But in my second place, Jewish. You spend your free time talking to black Israelites, so... Is that a PFT? <laughs> what a PFT. Well, like, let's hear the story. I need to hear this story, Joey. Let's go. Okay, so yesterday I was, um, I was walking on my way, and I see um, outside the Columbia Heights Metro, the group of like 15, 20 black Israelites. They're wearing these, uh, these purple four-cornered garments um, with fringes Because they graduated on. from NYU? No, because they had fringes on the bottom. They observed the mitzvot in the Torah. That is their take on seat seat. Um, and they also, they, they have those, um, takes on all the holidays, including Hanukkah and Purim, which I was pretty um, surprised by. But I guess it makes sense because they, um, I'm going fast because you know, we're, we're, we're being professionals here. So um, Hanukkah and Purim, because they kind of, they, I was talking to them about um, who wrote the Bible. And they were saying that um, Moses wrote the first five books. And then I say, well, what about the last three verses? And they said, like, Moses wrote the first five books and didn't really, uh, they weren't really ready for that one. Like they were normally ready with a verse. I will say they were normally very prepared with a verse for pretty much everything I said to them. And I wasn't arguing with them because obviously I'm not going to change their mind about anything. I was just trying to understand their deal. Um, so Hanukkah and Purim, um, they, have, they light a seven candle menorah every year. Um, the Book of Maccabees is in their canon. They were very confused how we celebrate Hanukkah without the Book of Maccabees in our canon. Um, they're also- But, but do, they, do they know that there are four books of Maccabees or only they think there's only one? I did not know that, so I could not ask them because okay. I did not have the vocabulary. Because only, only the first one is from, but there are four books of Maccabees in the Apocrypha. Um, and they, they also celebrate Purim. And for Purim, this is what gets very interesting. Um, they read the Megillah in English. Um, so I say, like, um, wouldn't it be better to read it in the original language? Like, you agree that it was originally written in Hebrew? And they say, yeah, um, but we have to read in the common tongue. So I said, like, okay, so do you have any desire to learn Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, like the original languages of the Bible? And they said, no. And I said, like, even if you can snap your fingers, you take no effort, you're just fluent in all these languages. They say, no, because those languages have been bastardized. Um, you thought you could keep the Torah from us, or the Bible. You thought you could keep it from us, you thought you could keep the truth from us, um, but you couldn't which I'm, I'm, I'm not doing anything. Um, so that's what they do. They celebrate Hanukkah and Purim for Sukkot. They, they buy a tent from Walmart and just camp out for a week. And I asked them, like, 
even if it's raining, I'm like, yeah, if it's raining, we just have to like sit in the rain. So uh, going to what you're going to talk about soon, uh, they're very, uh, they're very Karaite um, adjacent. They were very confused when they're like, they're asking me like, oh, um, I have this verse from, uh, so pretty much all their proofs, I'm not going to say all, but pretty much all um, were from either the sort of um, visionary prophets like uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, Daniel, or from like Shira Shiram um, to Hillam. And like most of everything saying like, and like uh, Shira Shiram, Sh- uh, Shlomo, or what the tribute of Shlomo says, like, I am black. So like, oh, clearly Shlomo Melch is black. When I don't know, like Shira Shiram's not really, uh, none of it's a source for history, but certainly not those books. Um, so um, they're saying like, oh, this verse from Jeremiah, do you believe in Jeremiah? And I said, like, Jeremiah is in the Jewish canon. I do not believe that Jeremiah had any prophecy. Like, what does that mean? How can you be Jewish and not believe? Like I said, like, if I were to just guess a number off the top of my head, I would say probably like 80% of Jews don't believe in the Bible um, as, a, as a true prophecy. And they say, yeah, because you know you took it from us. Which like, they were always ready. You got to give it to them. They're always ready, always on brand. Um, and like, I was well, trying it's to- easy, It's easy when you have one particular, like there's, when you have one particular idea, it's easy to stay on brand. <laughs> um, it's, and yeah, they're definitely ready with that. Like New Testament, like, oh, you guys don't, you guys don't um, view New Testament. Like, yeah, because you know, that's what the real truth is. Like, that's why you guys don't, because that's what you're trying to hide from us. Um, and yeah, they have like fringes for cissus. Um, they do circumcisions. Um, they do all that. Um, they call like regular Christians. They say like, oh, they celebrate Christmas, all those pagan holidays. Um, they call Black Lives Matter uh, movement um, by homosexuals to fund the Democratic Party to oppress black people which for all the black people who support Black Lives Matter and Louis Farrakhan, I don't want to try to reconcile that. Um, yeah, so that's their take on halacha. I mean, it's funny. It's funny because it's like, because originally that's what like Malcolm X and people in the Nation of Islam were saying about like Martin Luther King. So it's funny that now, that now yeah, they're still saying it. about Louis Farrakhan. And, and, and they're saying like, they're saying that Barack Obama, he's one of these people that supports these homosexual centers. Um, well, I mean, he does support homosexual centers. Yeah, I mean, the Black Lives Matter does support, like, <laughs> transsexual rights. They do support that. They do um, give yeah. money to the Democratic Party. Like, they're not 100% wrong in anything. It's just... No. Uh, no. Um, so then, um, moving on. So um, they were saying, like, again, so they, like, there was, their point of verse is saying that, like, oh, um, it's saying that your children will fill the prison houses. Like, that's how we know you're not the real ones. We're the real ones because who's filling the prison houses? Yeah. So, like, I, I think it was kind of just saying, like, I mean... Uh, my grandmother, like my mother's mother, was in a prison camp. And they're like, um, yeah, the Holocaust, that was one time that six million Jews, a hundred million black people are thrown off slave ships. And I said, like, first of all, I don't want to, like, they're both 10 out of 10 tragedies, so we don't need to, like, have yeah. any competition here. But the, the Holocaust is not an isolated event. We have events like the pogroms, um, we have events like the Crusades, we have the Spanish Inquisition, and they're like, the Spanish Inquisition, that was against us. Um, and I said, like, um, there were Jews expelled from Spain. There were Jews that were tortured um, and forced to convert. Like, yeah, us. And I said, like, you could look up a primary source. You could look up a rabbi named the Abrava. Now he's a very famous rabbi. He has lots of written works, primary sources. He was alive during the Spanish Inquisition. He was expelled from Spain. And like, they weren't hearing that. We're not here. They were not in the primary sources. Like, their favorite thing is to point. They opened a book written by a Jew in like 1920 who has a Jewish yeah. last name. I can't even confirm he's Jewish. Um, and they say, like, oh, this is what your people say. I'm like, like they're saying that we all. Um, come from Khazars um, and Edom and like we organized their enslavement um, and we took the Bible for them. So when they were slaves, like we taught them the Bible, but we taught them it was about us, not them. Even though obviously we did like Jews were 
disproportionately small amount of slave traders, black people are slave traders. Like it's, 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 it's outrageous to claim that we are the ones behind it. And I said, like, you want to like learn about the Khazars. Um, I was trying to say like, maybe look at the Kuzari. It's uh, like more, it's not contemporaneous, but it's more contemporaneous. And like, we don't like, they were just, obviously they, they're, they're very interested in their history um, when they were talking about. So like um, now going out to the burning bush. Um, so um, I asked them how this they- This is your last point, by the way. This is going out forever. This is my last verse on the thing. My last point on the thing. Great. So the burning bush. Um, so um, I asked them about like when, uh, regarding the writing of the Bible, um, Moses' prophecy versus um, the rest of it and the authenticity of the Bible that way. And they're saying like Ezra received everything when he wrote the rest of the Bible. That's you, Ezra. That Moses, yeah, Muslims say that also. Um, that Moses received um, when he did. So I said, how do you interpret the verse that um, Moses was the only person to speak to God face to face? There was no prophet like Moses. And they said that in the burning bush, this is the, this is the hot take. Do you know who was in the burning bush? Jesus. So uh, Jesus. Jesus was in the burning bush. Um, that's how Moses was able to talk to God face to face because nobody else was able to. Um, yeah. Jesus, who was not born yet. And then finally, they said, like, if they were me, they'd be very scared. They told me to enjoy my kingdom. Now. That's that's honestly that's Thank very you. that's very John. That's very Book of John. I'll take your word for it, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the book the book of John. Here, I have it. I have it here. Wait, hold up. For the record, I have my t- Jewish Tanakh in arm's reach. Ezra has uh, the New Testament. I also have a Tanakh. Tania, what do you have? I, I also have a Tanakh and I also I have, have, have bar prep materials. Yeah, I also, I also have a Tanakh and I also have a Quran. Um, yes, have, um, okay, so I support the laws of, of Hashem. Ezra supports the laws of Jesus. Ezra supports the laws of the United States, a heathen nation. <laughs> and, um, no, so, so in the, um, so John, which is a gospel, so it's talking about Jesus and the story of um, and the story of Jesus's birth and Jesus being the son of God starts with in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God right and that's like the first verse and there's a lot there's like infinite amounts of discussion over what this means but what a lot of people say is happening is that um, um, it's connected to like God creating the world with words with speech right and also connecting the idea of God speak speaking to Jesus, i.e. when God speaks in the world, right? God speaks through the arm of God that is Jesus, because of course God is divided into three different elements, right? So which is the part of God that communicates with the word, with the world? That is the word. And what is the word? The word is Jesus. So saying that the Jesus was in the burning bush is actually a very like John, like it's a kind of weird, but it's very John take, like a very like literalist John take on on the burning bush like yeah god was speaking to moshe but god was speaking to moshe through his heart that speaks to the world which which is jesus um i i i mean i think it's really interesting um i don't have really have anything to say because i don't really know anything about i mean i i know the things that you've told me about black israelites and like other minor things that's why you have to walk to the columbia heights metro station they're more than happy to talk to you for two hours if you try to tell them anything about like explaining just what what jews believe in our tradition and how we like oh yeah the other thing is um I said, like, how do you explain that we have an uninterrupted history um, from the time of the Second Temple, like, indisputably uninterrupted history? And they point to this verse, I think, in Jeremiah, saying, like, you shall forget my ways. So the fact that we have an uninterrupted history of Jews always existing works against us because we're supposed to have forgotten. Forget. Yeah. You should, uh, yeah. That's, that's funny. I like that. But I, so I have, a thing, I have a game that I want to play because I think this is really interesting. Scrabble. Listed 10 different groups that are Jewish-related groups. We could play Scrabble and- after. I want to see, and I want, and I want you guys to divide them into into two categories. 
okay? Category one is going to be uh, Jewish sects, right? And category two is going to be non-Jews, okay? And we're calling this section sects ed, okay? Sects ed. That's not sex ed for you, Arya. Arya doesn't need it. He's fertile as the Jordan Valley. True, we know, we've learned. <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah, so anyways, so, so here, are the, here are the 10 sects, and I'll give, like a, I'll give like a little bit of background, like a TLDR, um, some sects ed for those who need it. So um, group number one is, and for those of you who don't know, this is an audiovisual podcast, so they also have, have these written out for them. Um, you can also very clearly hear your clicking. <laughs> group number one is the Pharisees. The Pharisees, um, the Pharisees are the, um, the uh, Jews who um, were the precursors to rabbinic Judaism and the Mishnah during the Second Temple period. And a bunch of hypocritical <laughs> sinners, according to the Black Israelites. Go on. Um, the, the Sadducees were a group that were mostly um, priests and Levites um, who had a view. So they disagreed with the Pharisees in that the Pharisees um, believed in the oral in the oral law. This is like the main way of disagreement. The Sadducees believed in um, in uh, only written law. They did not believe in oral law. They also had different beliefs of eschatology of what happened at the end of the world. Was there a world to come? The Pharisees believed yes. The Sadducees believed no. Et cetera, et cetera. Um, also, a Second Temple period sect. The Essenes or the Dead Sea Scrolls people also a Second Temple period sect. Um, they were ascetic. They did not believe in physical pleasures. They were mostly male-dominated. There are very few women in the sect. Um, they had incredibly stringent views um, of Jewish law um, to the point that they caught, they would make fun of the Pharisees for being not actually religious. Um, they had incredibly stringent views on, on ritual purity. They also believed, they did not believe in the oral law or the written law. They, uh, or, I mean, they believed in the written law, but they didn't believe in, in the oral law or um, not, or only leaving with the written law and that's it. They believed that they still had direct prophetic line to God and could update the law through their, their direct prophetic line to God. Um, the Samaritans were also a second temple period sect. Um, they actually were not originally from Israel. They were, when the first exile happened, um, Jews were moved from Israel to Bavel and Bavel moved people from other places um, in the world to Israel. Um, and they moved some people from various places in like around Turkey and Syria into Shomron, into Israel. And back in the, back in the, um, in the, in the day, um, the way people thought the world worked um, was that uh, you believed in the God of the land that you were in. So Samaritans adopted belief in, in Hashem um, and they started serving, uh, uh, they started practicing um, Judaism, and they actually exist. They were most famous in the Second Temple period, through knowing G Jesus talking about Good Samaritans. Um, but they still exist today, living in Shomron. Um, early Christian. I, I, I got to cut you off just because like it's hard to remember all, all these things. So let's just uh, play with the first four. Okay, the first four. What do you guys think about the first four? All right. So Pharisees, the first one. Again, that's precursor rabbinic Judaism. I think we all agree they're Jewish. Yeah. I'm not going to answer. I want to hear what you guys say. Okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a yes on the Pharisees. Yeah, if you, um, as a general rule, if you were uh, existent under the kingdom of Judah, you're not automatically Jewish, no matter what. So I'm going to call pretty much all the first four Jewish. I think so too. I think like the, I guess the, 
definitely the the eschatology bits about the Sadducees do not sway me really one way or the other, um, because I don't know eschatology like differences in beliefs in eschatology in practice is probably going to be minimal. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I, I get that they're sort of working off the same kind of baseline, even if you don't believe in the oral law, can't really blame you. It's oral. So, um, I'm, I'll, I'll go with the S on those two. Okay. So, so, okay. So we've done, so we did the, the first four who are the second temple period groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, Essenes and Samaritans, and you guys said all four of them. You said they're all. Yeah, the uh, only the only the only one that might be different is the Samaritans, but honestly, I would still lump them in. I'd still go yes. Yeah. I'm gonna include. Okay, I would I would point out to you that the rabbis considered Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes to be Jewish, and Samaritans to not be Jewish. Um, um. So the rabbis who come after the rabbinites who come after the Second Temple period, right? Um. They, uh, they considered the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes to all be Jewish, and they write about them. In, they write about all four of these groups in the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Essenes are referred to as Beit Sim in the Mishnah, um, and, uh, or the Baitusim sometimes in the Mishnah. Um, but um, those three groups the rabbis did consider to be Jewish, and the Samaritans the rabbis did not. Um, let's go to the next group. Um, I'm actually going to split this up. But you're not going to voice your opinion? No, I'm going to tell you afterwards what, what I think. Okay. Uh, I, I, um, I, I, let's, put, let's go to the next group. So we'll do, we'll do groups of three and three now, okay? So the next three, um, we're going to do the Messianic groups, okay? So early Christians, right? So early Christians were generally Pharisees who broke away from being Pharisaic Jews to support Jesus um, and then eventually formed a new religion under the church um, but originally they were just Pharisaic Jews who broke away, rejected the oral law. That was like one of their main reasons for breaking away and accepted Jesus. Um, then we have black Israelites who are obviously modern. Um, um, uh, I, I don't really know exactly where they came from, but they're certainly like a more modern development. And they came from Israel. We're the ones that came from Khazars. Ka- um, and then Chabad, right? Especially the messianic portions of Chabad, right? Who believe that the Rebbe is the Messiah, right? So those three, how would you rank those three? Oh, we're ranking them? I'm not ranking them, but how would you, how would, how would you split them up? How would you split up those three? Like, Arya, you, do you want to take it first? Yeah, sure. Um, Look at you. I guess starting with Chabad, I think like, again, like, yeah, so that, I, I would say the messianic, the messianic aspect of Chabad is definitely underplayed by Chabad but if you go to Crown Heights, it is more played. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you go to Crown Heights? I have been known to on occasion. For what occasion? What they, have great, they have great food. There's tons of great restaurants. Izzy's oh, okay. Smoke Just like during the week. Well, okay. no. They do, have, they do have great restaurants. Like yeah. Restaurants. And at the restaurants, they're just, uh, what's like, it's like yichi. Like, what's their, uh, what's their little thing? What? The like, yucky thing that he's still alive. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, tons of that stuff all over the place. Yeah, but anyway, I think, again, the eschatology stuff, like, doesn't bother me. Like, Chabad is, I don't know, they're Jewish. If they believe the Rebbe is the Mashiach, who's to say? May, it, you know, I guess we'll find out at some point if he is or he isn't. I um, think the argument is that we found out. 
<laughs> on a cold day in 1993 when, uh, when he passed away. Uh, well, okay, but the thing about the Messiah is they return. Wait, so, so if that's what you think about Chabad, then what do you think about early Christians then? Yeah, early Christians, I mean, it's... Like, it, Paul, like Paul, who's the most famous of the early Christians, studied in yeshiva and talks about yeah. Pharisaic Torah teaching quite fluently in the New Testament. Yeah, it's just a little bit leading to call them early Christians. Um, so it's difficult to then say that they were also Jews, um, just like if, if that's sort of the title you give them. Um, I guess at some point, maybe he sort of must have, um, you know, re- like uh, re- rejected the, like the kind of primarily, primary underlying tenets of Judaism. Um, maybe he personally didn't. Um, maybe that group wasn't. But at, you know, if they sort of set them on the path to become a different religion, at some point along that line, um, then you'd have to say that they weren't. But it's possible that, like in the beginning, early on enough, while they were just like, if they were just like different-ish, but not different enough, that that might, uh, I guess, you know, you could argue that they were Jews. The Black Israelites, I defer to Joey on that one. He's the expert. All right, Joey, those three, how would you, how would you group them? Um, so I guess one question about the early Christians. Um, so I think Chabad and Black Israelites, um, that they differ, that Chabad wants literally everybody to put on tefillin every day, no matter what their relationship is with Judaism. If they see somebody walking around with curly hair and a hooked nose, they'll say, do you put on tefillin today? So... Um, and obviously the black Israelites, they told me that I should enjoy my kingdom now because my judgment is coming. And they called me, a, they said that they don't want to learn about my heathen religion. Um, so I guess on what side of that spectrum would you say early Christians were? were uh, so did they come from a place of they are still calling themselves Jews, they're still trying to be inclusive? Or was I mean, the black Israelites saying that um, everything you're this, saying is wrong, enjoy rotting in hell? Let's put it this way, early Christians, very strongly attempted to recruit specifically Jews to come. They were not focused on recruiting non-Jews at the beginning. Early Christians were focused on, on convincing Jews that their approach was correct. However, they were also convinced on, um, they were also uh, like strident about convincing Jews that their approach was correct because they believed that Jews who continued to follow their current path of Judaism were doomed to hell. And like- That's what Chabad says also though. So I feel like it's unfair to, so based on what you're saying, I think if I'm calling Chabad Jewish, I'm, I'd have to call early Christians Jewish. In Chabad, what they, the, the two things that we're standing for, especially if we talk about the Mishichists, um, A, the, um, that evangelism is something I'm very strongly opposed to, just not even with Judaism, I'm strong, uh, strongly opposed to evangelism, not even with religion, to any doctrine, strongly opposed to it. And the idea that the Messiah has already come, I'm strongly opposed to. So I definitely do not support those two ideas, which are the two things that, outside of other Hasidut, but separate them from uh, the, uh, the majority of Jewish people. However, I would say that Chabad and early Christians, I would call Jews. Um, black Israelites, who, um, to me, Judaism is so um, highly associated with the Masorah and the fact that, I mean, Seth Rogen talks about it in his Mark Merritt interview. If you just find a Jewish finger on the ground, you could do a DNA test, it'll come back Ashkenazi Jew. Um, or even Sephardi Jews, or um, I'm not an expert in Ethiopian Jews, so I, I, I don't really know. 
for, they could be Jewish, they could not be Jewish. I'm just, I'm, I'm not, I'm not holding. Um, so black Israelites that say that your Masora is so wrong and the fact that you have uninterrupted history is what makes you wrong. Um, I would definitely not call them Jews in any sense. I would call them an anti-Jewish hate group, in fact. All right. And then the, the last, uh, the last two, actually, I want to put two in there. The last two that I want to talk about are Karaites and Reconstructionist Jews. Um, so Karaites specifically rejected the oral law. This is obviously post-Sadducees. Um, they, they were not a direct, they claimed that they were descended from the Sadducees, but they were not. That was like make way historically. They, and black Israelites are the same way, by the way. They, they, they have spouse that the Talmud teaches us all to be pedophiles and like they have sources for it. Yeah. So, so Karaites, right? So you have Karaites who um, were a group that was developed around the seventh century um, and specifically rejected the oral law. Though obviously still believe very strongly in the written law. Um, and were very similar to Sadducees, even though they were obviously historically from a different time period and kind of developed on their own. And then Reconstructionist Jews, um, which is from the 20th century, which um, was developed by Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan, the former uh, rabbi and founding rabbi of the Jewish Center, Nebo Asside, um, who then proceeded to leave Orthodoxy to found a movement which explicitly believed um, that um, Jewish law was a thing of the past and Jews should continue to exist purely as a cultural entity and not as a legal entity. Yeah, and if you want to know more about the Mordechai element um, specifically, um, you could read Zev Elif's book, uh, Century at the Center, Orthodox Judaism and the Jewish Center um, by Zev Elif. It's available on Amazon. <laughs> Great plug. All right, those two. How would you, how would you group those two? Jewish, Jewish sects or non-Jews? And they're both easy in for me. Like, if, if care rates weren't Jewish, then they wouldn't have bothered Rambam so much, you know? like he was perfectly capable of saying like oh christians are idolaters muslims they're not one of us like he was bothered by the karaites i think that's because they're jewish and that they were a, a, an existential threat to him what is that noise? um and, and reconstruction yeah they're jewish i agree i agree both then as well i have nothing else to add okay so so you guys came out I think exactly the same way that I came out, um, which is um, you had out of those out of those out of those nine, you have seven Jewish and two non-Jewish. Your seven Jewish are Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Chabad, Karaites, and Reconstructionists, and your two non-Jewish are Samaritans and Black Israelites. I think we're both borderline on Samaritan. Okay, I yeah. So I think it's interesting. I think there are really three different ways. I think this is what I'm trying to get at here. There are really three different ways of looking at how you define Judaism um, and who is a Jew and who is not a Jew. Um, one of them is like ethnic or genealogical. Um, one of them is historical, like the, un like the and we've discussed all of these kind of, one of them is legal, right? Like what makes someone a Jew? Is it, for is it about following certain laws, right? Is it about like accepting certain things? Right? Is it about having a gene, like being genealogically connected to a specific people, right? Or is it about um, being historically being able to trace a masora of your group back up to other groups, right? Um, and I think that if depend, like we all kind of came, right? Like I think like Joey, like Joey actually made very clear that he cares. The two things that he cares about 
um, I think the most um, are ethnic and um, or genealogical and Misora historical. Like when he was talking about um, the, uh, when he was talking about like a lot of the groups he would reference, like, you know, reference the Sephirogan genealogical point, right? He was talking about Misora, right? But what's interesting then is um, you also were like kind of okay accepting um, Samaritans, even though Samaritans have neither of those things. Like Samaritans are ethnically a very different group, right? They were moved to Israel and were like from outside of Israel were never connected with Jews, right? And from a Masora perspective, they do not have the same Masora. They developed their own Masora like on their own after they were moved into Israel, right? Yeah, so I think that if we're talking about, again, I can't speak, I have absolutely no frame of reference for the um, historical validity of Ethiopian Jews, but I think the Ethiopian Jews that moved to Israel and accepted a Jewish identity, whether or not they keep the Torah, I think that they are now certainly Jewish. So, th- so there is some element of like the like the legal right accepting the law and like keeping like keeping a certain like. So then the question I think I, the question I guess is right like um, why is it that Black Israelites aren't? And I guess maybe like for you, Joey, and I think this is interesting. I think maybe for you the thing is that you need to have two out of the three, right? You have to have the legal, or you have to have the ethnic, or you have to have the historical, right? Um, and um, and the black Israelites only have one, which is legal. And even their legal is like kind of like, you know, a bit different. And their right. legal is that, um, that they're servants to Jesus. So like even their legal and like they, they, they say that the rabbinic Judaism, and again, rabbinic Judaism isn't necessarily authentic Judaism with that you've detailed with all this um, stuff that predates um, rabbinic Judaism. But the fact that they say that the Talmud <laughs> preaches us to be pedophiles, like that, yeah. um, that doesn't sit well with me in terms of them accepting yeah. Um, a legal Jewish identity. Yeah, but I think I think what's interesting is that I think most people would kind of break it up with the seven and two approach, right? Would kind of break it up with like Black Israelites and Samaritans not being included and everyone else being included. And the reason why is because I think for most people, when they think about who's Jewish and who's not Jewish, it ends up boiling down to purely ethnic distinctions, right? Like the first three groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, were all like groups who were ethnically descended from the people who came from from the first kingdom of Israel. They were in the second kingdom of Israel, right? They had very different conceptions of law from each other, right? But like genealogically, they were all the same, right? Right. Well, I, 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 the same point what? about the people who are like today who are like Jews for Jesus. Like it could be that the people who are in that group are in fact Jewish, but that like the, the sect itself is not a Jewish sect. You didn't include them, but I... I I assume we yeah. they were not. Yeah. In, um, yeah. So. I think, I think, I, I, I think had a Jews for Jesus next door neighbor for seven years. And a Jews for Jesus rabbi. I had a Jews for Jesus rabbi as a next door neighbor for seven years. I had a, I had a Jews for Jesus member of my high school class. <laughs> Can't confirm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think, I think I like, I don't, I don't know if there's like a, like a, like a clear like answer to these questions, but I think it's interesting in that, you know, people often, like, I think your are all of our inclinations is to group like black Israelites, right, as like not being Jewish, right? That's also, if they, if, if they hate me, why would I include them when they have just this unrelenting hatred toward me, and they don't even want to have an honest Karaites, conversation? Karaites hated us also. Karaites hated us in like the 8th, ninth century. Like, Karaites actively encouraged Muslim authorities to kill Rabbinites. Mm, that's unpleasant. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, I mean, Essenes despised the Pharisees. The Essenes, the Essenes, the Essenes called the, um, 
the, the leader of the Pharisees, they have a term for him, they call him the wicked priest. Um, the Essenes actually supported, so in, I, this is a shear that I like to give, but in the story of Hanukkah, people don't realize that Hanukkah, the story of the Maccabees, was actually a, it was a Jewish civil war. Um, there, were, there were, the Pharisees were fighting against the Sadducees and the Essenes, right? And the, one of the reasons why the rabbis don't like talking about the military element of Hanukkah so much is because if you read Josephus, what actually happened in Hanukkah was there, were the, there was a Greek civil war and a Jewish civil war. So the Greeks were actually split up into two different um, empires. There was the Seleucid Greeks, who were based in Syria and Lebanon, and the Ptolemaic Greeks who were based in um, Egypt. And the Pharisees um, ended, up, um, ended up being uh, supporters of the um, Ptolemaic, um, or sorry, not Ptolemaic, the Seleucid Empire, which was the, uh, the Syria-Lebanon Empire, and the Sadducees and the Essenes were supporters of the, um, were supporters of the Ptolemaic, the Egyptian Greeks. And they were, as the two Greek empires fought each other, the Jews also fought each other. And in the Essene texts, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found um, passages where they talked about um, very like happily and proudly Greek soldiers massacring Pharisee rabbis. Like they talked about how Fer- Greeks were putting Pharisee rabbis on the cross and spoke about how that was such a positive thing in their commentaries that, that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Um, and the Pharisees also talk about killing Sadducees in the Mishnah and Gemara, right? The Rabbinites talk about killing Sadducees in, the Mish- in like the Mishnah and Gemara, like happily, right? And talk about how the Sadducees liked to kill Pharisees. Um, so like if you're going purely based on like they want physical harm to happen to them, like a lot of Jewish groups that we consider to be Jewish groups have wanted physical harm to happen to other Jewish groups. That yeah, we I mean, that even, I mean, we're really pressing for time now, but that even happens in this book I'm reading about Israel right now. Um, it talks yeah. about how Sephardi Jews um, in modern Israel will spray paint on the wall, Ashkenazi Jews go back to Auschwitz and Dachau. So like, and they'll call the survivors that emigrate, early, early immigrants to Israel from, um, from Europe that are survivors of the, of the Holocaust, they'll call them soap. So like, I mean, that's still, that kind of bigotry, I mean, still happens. And obviously everyone would consider Sephardi and Ashkenazi Jews to be both um, authentically Jewish. I think I realized why it's important to have Tani on the podcast, because he actually, he stops us talking. Yeah, he babysits us. That's why yeah. I did this topic when he's not here. Yeah, I, I, I purposely. <laughs> this is going to be the longest podcast ever. Okay, but it's, uh, it's, it's by far the most important. What other, other, what other topics are going to talk about Rami Osman's marriage? You know, that's why. <laughs> And Ezra, I think your description there of the Hanukkah story is the kind of nuance that we're not getting in our high school education. So yeah, well, no one learns Josephus ever. You, would, you don't even learn Josephus in college. Forget about yeah. that. <laughs> um, he's, yeah, Ezra, that's why we just need, we need to be under the tutelage on the, on the knee of Ezra teaching us his Torah. <laughs> Which I am. How many, how many days do I not ask you some Torah question? Joey, literally every night as I'm about to fall asleep, I get a Facebook message that I feel <laughs> obligated to answer right away from him asking me a Torah question. And I'm not, I don't feel obligated to answer it because like, I feel like, like, you know, that's the relationship that I have with Joey where I feel obligated to answer it. It's just that I feel like if I don't answer it, he's going to spend another night believing something completely false. <laughs> I disabuse him of these false notions right away. And I appreciate you for that. Are we getting into Leia Newman gossip? <laughs> I don't have any Leia Newman gossip. I was just kind of hoping that like Arya would have some good Leia Newman gossip. I mean, you're the one living with her now, Ezra. 
I know, but I also live with her now. We grew up together for past I know, seven. but I also live with her now. So if she hears me saying any gossip about her, I will literally get killed. <laughs> I can confirm I have no Leia Newman gossip whatsoever. <laughs> I don't know. Is she she is one she, time came across my brother when she's at Landis. She was dating a guy at the beginning of quarantine. I don't have the like. I don't have the like, guts to ask if it's still happening. Are they still happening? I have Holly, no what? <laughs> what did you say? I have no comment. Talk to your sister. Oh, I can't ask her those questions. And for I... all our listeners at home, talk to your sisters. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to end it. All right. Are we asking Tanya to edit this? Or are we just? <laughs> no, I think we're just throwing it up, right? <laughs> are you? What do you vote? Uh, look, we can't give Tony the extra work. He's at a wedding. Tani, are you kidding me? Tony's not going to want to edit a one hour and 45 minute recording. <laughs> uh, one hour and 43 minutes. As uh, Arya and I were here on time, uh, some of us weren't. Okay, whatever. You might as well just cut it off now. Bye, everyone. Thank you, thank, thank you guys for having me. It was a pleasure. Anytime. Uh, yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for contributing and also spending lots of time listening to us. <laughs> Well, Indulging. I'm also glad to be under Ezra's tutelage, so I appreciate any opportunity. <laughs> I hope I hope that people made it far enough in the pod to learn about Hanukkah, and I'll I'll be happy to send my source sheet to anyone who wants to anyone who wants it for my Hanukkah shoe. Send all your shoes. Send us all your Rambam shoes. Send us everything. I, have, <laughs> I sent sh- them to you. I sent all my. I sent to everybody. Put them in the show notes. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye, everyone. All right. See you guys.